This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Past nine, you tune to 102.73 Triple R. It's time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. I'm Dr. Surf. And I'm Angeline Charles. How are you doing? Good. 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 I'm good. I can pretty much guarantee I was the only surf related car heading north this morning. <laughs> Surf's up today, is it? That's good. That's good. Yeah, but it'll be good all day, so I'm okay. Excellent. Hey, thank you, Tim, very much for Vital Bits, the program where you can hear everything from trad jazz to mogwai in one bracket. Did enjoy today. Hey, let's go through today's program. We are very excited because we're going to be catching up with our brand new dive reporter, Angeline and Dr. Surf, and her name's Terry Allen. I've known Terry for a long time. I reckon probably close to, oh, we can we can work that out when she's on air, maybe twenty years or so. Terry is uh, she's a she can tell us about herself when we get her online. But she uh, she's been diving for nearly twenty five years. She dives every single weekend. She's a dive instructor and um, she lives, breathes, and uh, is scuba diving. So she's going to be bringing us her inaugural dive report just after ten past nine, and uh, she's actually on her way down to a dive now. So she'll be pulling over by the side of the road and uh, talking to us about bay diving, diving in the bay and uh, some also some activities that her club has been up to in terms of um, going and cleaning up debris which is fantastic 
and the dive that she's going to be doing today. So that's going to be pretty cool. We're going to be then um, in our little local news segment, which we have sort of around 9.30, catching up with Tim Silverwood, and he's going to be presenting uh, an evening coming up on Wednesday as part of the Sustainable Living Festival. It's called Take Three for the Sea, and uh, he's going to be talking about that, what's coming up with all of that, and some of the work that he does in plastics, researching plastics pollution in the oceans. Then just after 9.30, we are going to be crossing to Sydney to speak with Jules Barr-Thompson. And Dr. Surf, you'll be particularly interested in this one. She's uh, about to embark on an amazing adventure. She's going to be paddling unassisted from Newcastle down to Bondi Beach. 150 kilometres unassisted. She might be assisted by the cyclone that's coming down the coast. (laughs) She might nature's assistance <laughs> <laughs> and she's doing all of this to raise money for uh both surf rider foundation and also motor neurone disease research fantastic interesting link there so uh, they're just two causes i think that are very uh near and dear to her heart so we'll speak with her about that and then we're going to wrap up with uh, a whole bunch of news and dr surf you've got a special segment that you've brought in surfers to the rescue i've called it yeah it's actually quite um topical given um, it's summer and it's basically a finally a study has been done a university study that's been done that's trying to gauge how many people surfers rescue from the surf compared to how many people lifesavers rescue and it's not a competition lifesavers do a fantastic job but it's interesting just how many people are rescued by surfers on beaches that are not patrolled and um and don't make it into the stats either Pardon? And don't make it into the stats, into the statistics. That's right. Because <clears throat> all the surf lifesaver ones would be recorded, of yep. course. Yep. Yeah. This has never been recorded before. So there's a study from the University of New South Wales that came out last year. And I'll finish up with a, what I did was print it off. And because I'm computer, completely computer illiterate, my computer printed off everything on the website, <laughs> including all the comments. I don't normally read the comments, but I read them this time. Cause, and there's one comment that has a really nifty way of saving someone from a rip. Oh, right. So I'll share that with the, the listeners. Excellent. going to do a quick bit of uh, weather forecasting for you, and then um, we'll have time for a few events to plug in a couple of bits of news. Uh, before we go to a track. The weather forecast for today, well, it's gone up. It was 34, it's gone up to 36. Sunny morning, slight chance of a shower in the afternoon and early evening, chance of a thunderstorm in the afternoon and early evening as well. Winds are going to be northerly up to 35 kilometres an hour, becoming light in the late afternoon. Yes. <laughs> Is that good, Dr. Seth? Yes. <laughs> Is that when you're planning on getting out yeah. there? Uh, tomorrow, 29 thundery shower or two. Tuesday, 19 partly cloudy. Wow, that's a big plummet from 36 oh, to 19. I've got a comment to make about that later on. Have you? Well, from a horticultural perspective, okay. my, my supervisor always told me the 20th of February is when the seasons tip. Right. Plus or minus five days. Well, yeah. And so I, I'm thinking it's about that time of the year when autumn starts to rear its beautiful head. Yes. It's always so what nice. is it on Tuesday? 19. 19. Oh, that's fabulous. And that'll be the 24th, so there you go. Mm. Bang on. Coming back up to 25 on Wednesday, partly cloudy. Thursday, 24, partly cloudy. Friday, 22, and Saturday, 23. So today is the only really hot one. In the next week ahead, tomorrow it's still going to get up to about 29. The tide times, uh, and I'm talking about Port Phillip heads here. We've just had a low tide at 8.54am and then heading for a high tide at 3.30 this afternoon. Do you want to do a quick surf forecast yeah, for the day? The swell's dropped 
considerably. It's probably about half what it was yesterday, which is a good thing for the beaches because they weren't handling it very well yesterday. You, if you want to go east of Melbourne, you'll get some nice little three-foot waves, occasional four-footers, be one to two foot on the west coast. A bit windy in the morning, you'll have to find a sheltered spot, but in the afternoon, if you can do the late, what we call the Largo, late afternoon glass off we're hoping for, I think it could be okay. And uh, what you just said completely concurs with uh, with Swellnet. It's always good to have you here. I always cross check what they've put in <laughs> that Swellnet I didn't provide get it to the from age. Swellnet. That was my personal observation. It's pretty much bang on what what Swellnet have said. <laughs> well, they as well. got it, oh, I nearly rang you last week because they got it wrong. Oh, did they? Yeah, ah. it was a lot bigger than what they said. Oh, we'll make sure. Yeah, ring. Let us know. Okay. All right. And twenty degrees water temperature too, so it's nice oh, and warm. The water is just glorious. No other word for it. No. And the bay is, what, 23? Ugh. It's like a, a, bath. a bath. Beautiful. Hey, we've got uh, time for a little bit of news. Have you got anything there, Angeline? I have. I was going to tell you about a, um, a US ship that's had to pay the Philippines $2 million in compensation for damage caused to a reef in the Philippines. Um, you might think this is like a, a company that um, doesn't have good practices and rusty bucket ships, but it was in fact, uh, in fact the US Navy that did this um the the uss guardian became stranded on a tabata reef this was in january 2013 um and it was quite a big event in fact they had to cut the ship up into pieces to get it off the reef uh and salvage it salvage it onto another ship it took them about 10 weeks to do it and uh the ship damaged uh 2345 square kilometers of reef Now, that's a massive damage to the reef. And and to think that you couldn't get the ship out without actually cutting it up to pieces Mm. and sticking it on a carrier ship is quite a substantial oops. Uh, so the US is paying $2 million to the Philippines. Um, they've put it down to poor voyage planning. It's the official word on that. <clears throat> and the money will go towards um, enhancing mon- monitoring activities in the area so that they can prevent similar incidents from happening in the future. Oh, good. It's going into research. It is. And I believe the US will be helping the Philippines Coast Guard upgrade their patrol station guarding the reef. That's a good fine, isn't it? $2 million. It is. It's quite a, quite a lot of money. But then it was, uh, it was quite a significant mishap on behalf of the the navy there mm. i've got a couple of quick plugs then we're going to play some music uh last week on the program you would have heard uh, our interview if you listened with uh, helen gibson from the sandringham foreshore association and professor tim flannery we were uh, most delighted to see this story picked up in the age on friday uh if you if you want to check that one out we've actually put a link to that um, story on our Facebook page so you can hook into that and have a look. Just wanted to really give a plug to their event which is taking place this Sunday uh, from 12 till 3 o'clock and it's at the Bo Morris Life Saving Club, not the Bo Morris Motor Yacht Squadron. I really want to make that point. So you just head down to Ricketts Point and uh, you'll, there'll be lots of people there. You'll work it out anyway. So um, go along to that. Speakers include Professor Tim Flannery, Dr Eric Fitzgerald, who was our guest a couple of weeks ago on the program as well. He's paleontologist from Museum Victoria. Professor John Buckridge from RMIT University. It's a free event, but they are asking for a gold coin donation to assist them with their campaigning. So the speeches will be between 1.30 and 3 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, you can, if you've got fossils, you can bring them along for identification as well. So get down there for that event. 
Another one I wanted to plug, we're actually going to talk about this in more detail next week, but just to get uh, get this on your radar because the tickets are selling fast, it's uh, the public seminar showcasing Victoria's marine science. We did mention this one last week, but um, John's asked me, John Ford, our, our, our own John Ford, uh, he's involved in organising this, wanted me to let you know because the tickets are selling really quickly. If you want to go to this, you need to get tickets now. So this is featuring Victorian marine scientists sharing inspiring stories about their marine research. So Peter McCready talking about blue carbon, Jan Strugnell talking about the Southern Ocean. Um, our own Tim Allen, he always will be, talking about marine conservation. Uh, Alicia Belgrove about seaweed, the superfood. Tim O'Hara about discovering deep sea biodiversity. And Kate Charlton-Robb about discovering and uh, identifying new species of dolphins. So that's coming up Wednesday, 4th of March. So it's Wednesday week, 6 till 7.30 at Melbourne Museum Theatre, Carlton Gardens. Tickets are $10 full priced or $8 concession. So make sure you get along to that. Get your tickets now before it sells out. Uh, Dr. Surf. Can I do white tag? You can. I mentioned this one a couple of weeks, but let's mention it again now because I did bring it in again. Thank you, Bron. There's an ocean fundraising gala for white tag, which is basically the um, um, whose sole objective is to help and fund create innovative science around sharks. And we have an ocean fundraising gala on Friday, March 13th at the Melbourne Aquarium from 7pm to 11pm. Advanced bookings. Uh... It Get. says $125 per person or 11.25 for groups of 10 and you can get online and book those now. So sounds like a really good event. Get out your glad rags. Yes. And the money all goes to White Tag, which is uh, right. and, and research, shark research. We're very excited because we are now about to launch our uh, inaugural report of our uh, of Terry Allen. She's our new dive reporter. That's possibly the worst introduction I've ever done. Hi, Terry. Hi, Brian. How are you going? I'm good, thanks. Hey, welcome aboard. Thank you very much. <laughs> our new dive reporter. Thought we might kick off by um, just really talking about you. And I've mentioned um, at the start of the show that you and I have known each other a long time we haven't seen each other for a while but you're actually my first dive buddy i don't know if you remember that long... oh gosh where was that Bron? that would have been oh I, um after i did my open water certification it would have been somewhere in the bay i have to go back uh. and check my dive log <laughs> <laughs> oh very good yeah no I, I was just trying to work out i've actually been diving for uh, 31 years wow obviously started extremely young <laughs> Fantastic. So you've been diving for 31 years and um, you and I met through the Melbourne University Underwater Club. Yeah. And, um, and you've uh, done a lot of diving sort of through there and now you're instructing. I thought maybe just spend a couple of minutes talking about yourself and, you know, all of the various diving you've done because it's not just local. You dive pretty much everywhere you can get wet, don't you? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I, I actually did my dive master course with Melbourne University as well. And then I went on to um, do my instructor course um, 2004. So, um, yeah, so I've, I dive all around the bay, um, but also I've, I've done a lot of diving around the uh, South Pacific, all around Australia. Probably the furthest away I've been is Scarpa Flow in uh, Scotland, which was incredible diving on World War I uh, German wrecks. Um, I also do a bit of uh, freshwater stuff, so I really like cave diving to uh, teach a bit of cave diving as well. and uh, But, yeah, I still love going, you know, around the bay and have fantastic dives under Rye Pier yesterday. Yeah, I meant to, I meant to mention, too, um, that uh, with cave diving, because you've been on the program before, it was a while ago, but in your capacity as president of the Cave Diving Association of Australia, I think it was. 
Yeah, yeah, I was one of the um, directors, yeah, yeah. And so one of the things we're really looking forward to doing in having you on the program um, every few weeks is to talk about all the, the wide variety of diving that you can do because you've just touched on that, talking a little bit, you know, we've got the local stuff, there's pier diving, uh, obviously there's the diving that, you know, you can do up in the tropics, which is magnificent, and then, of course, there's really sort of extreme cold water diving in Scotland. That sounds amazing. I can't wait to hear about that. And, um, you know, there's night diving, drift diving, all sorts of diving that you can do yeah yeah so we're really lucky in melbourne because um you know depending on which way the wind's blowing you can pretty much get in somewhere um and really our piers and jetties are 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 really quite they're almost unique i mean south australia's got a couple of fantastic um pier dives but uh you know the variety of life and that we see um is incredible you know and you only have to be in five meters of water and in fact you don't have to dive you can you know we had a lot of people snorkeling yesterday that were seeing lots of uh, we had calamari and and lots of juvenile fish and uh yeah so you know all the way to the nice deep walls um in the in the heads and then outside we've got the ship's graveyard which has about 40 or so wrecks that were sunk out there so there really is something for every level of diving. And the water temperature varies so much throughout the year too. We were just talking about it a little while ago and um, Dr Surf was saying it's about 23 in the bay at the moment. Is that right? Yeah, we had uh, we had 22 at Rye. Um, South Road last week, I think we had 24. And the ocean will be probably about 20, 21 today. So, yeah, so um, it's, it's very nice. You could almost... I mean, quite a few people were diving yesterday without hoods or anything, so it's, uh, yeah, what makes it a lot easier. And then we head into winter where it kind of gets into ice cream headache territory. <laughs> yes, well, I'm, I'm sure you've talked about it on your program before, but we have a very interesting oscillation in Melbourne that uh, the bay actually gets colder in winter than the ocean. So the ocean will dip down to maybe sort of, 13, 14, whereas the bay, I've actually seen 9 degrees at Brighton in the bay. So because the bay gets the fresh water and, and such comes in, it gets, the, it gets colder in winter and then, of course, it warms up in summer because you've got the big heat sink from, you know, the large bay with the sand. But, um, yeah, so you just have to be careful where you go. <laughs> now, you're going off for a dive today and thought we might talk a little bit about that and then um, maybe where your pick of the day would be. You're, I know you're on your way down to Portsea at the moment. Whereabouts are you heading today? Uh, so today I'm um, I'm actually um, instructing, so I'm teaching an advanced open water course and we did three dives yesterday under Rye. Today we're heading down to do part of the wall. Uh, the students, uh, we do a deep dive with them so they get down to around about 30 metres and we're doing um, Devil's Drop-Off, which is a beautiful part of the wall. Um, and then this afternoon we'll head out through the heads and go do a dive just near Point Lonsdale called Dragon's Lair, which has got uh, some of the lovely old sort of limestone reefs out there. So we've got a we've got a fairly strong northerly forecast, um, which might make the bay a little bit choppy, um, but not too bad. But definitely outside the heads, you know, the back beaches would probably be the pick of the day. Probably similar to what the uh, from what Doctor Surf and the uh, surfers need. Yeah, he was. Doctor Surf's pretty keen to get out there and um, and, and indulge in that this afternoon. Um, now uh, we were talking um, offline about some um, great cleanup work that your dive club was doing. Could you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, sure. Um, so we we do a number of cleanups with our club um, each year, and we were doing the sort of traditional cleanup Australia March time, but. 
we found that obviously there's a lot of rubbish accumulates in, under our piers, um, you know, all through the year. And um, the other thing that's really great is our club members absolutely love doing these clean-up dives. Um, they just find it fun and social and, you know, they find that it really sort of can make a bit of a, a difference to our dive site. So we had... Uh, a group from our dive club went to Flinders Pier in the morning and then they all drove over to Rye and caught up with us and then we all did the uh, the clean-up under Rye Pier and we had over 40 divers there yesterday. Wow. And how much stuff did you collect? Uh, it was quite a lot. Um, a lot of, a lot of um, fishing line, of course, a lot of uh, squid jigs, uh, glass bottles, cans... Um, nothing really big this time, although I don't know if Flinders, I, I know last time I was at Flinders I saw a deck chair had fallen overboard. <laughs> so you do get a few weird and wonderful things. Oh, parts of um, fishing rods and stuff like that. So, so yeah, it was quite quite a big clean-up. The, the fishing line, of course, is the worst. And we have done other clean-ups uh, for uh, the Seal the Loop, um, which you may have discussed before, and they are from... Um, the Melbourne Zoo, and so that you'll you'll see special green containers around each of the piers, designed for fishermen and other people to um, throw away their old fishing line, rather than obviously tossing it into the ocean. Oh, that's fantastic! Do you want to give your dive club a, a bit of a plug, given that you're going out there and doing all this great clean-up community work? <laughs> yeah, so we're um, our dive club's called Ocean Divers, um, and we're, we're based in um, East, East Bentley, across the road from the the big GSAC pool. And, uh, yeah, we do a lot of regular um, shore dives and, yeah, teaching and such. Fantastic. All right, Terry, we're going to let you go because we know you have to get down to Portsea and get on a boat. So um, we're going to hopefully get you in studio one of these days, although I do appreciate Sunday is the day that you dive. <laughs> but well, we'll... maybe occasionally I can come up to Old Brunswick. I don't mind doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and, and I'll be going away to yeah, Western, West Papua in March, so um, I might chat a little bit about that next time oh brilliant yeah we might come with you <laughs> okay <laughs> we'll come and do an op you could be my exodus bag <laughs> <laughs> fantastic hey thanks so much it's been a pleasure and i'm really looking forward to catching up with you again soon no worries brian okay my pleasure see Bye-bye. you take care bye for now terry allen and you dive reporter what a great lot of work cleaning up all that gear under the pier yeah it's really good it's just fantastic that it's being done yeah we were down at flinders Last Sunday, actually, took the kids snorkeling. It was actually really, really nice. Yeah. I was surprised. It was, it was quite clean, so um, I think the divers had been through before we got there. But, but um, it's a terrific thing to do if anyone's after something to do. Go to the piers. Mm. Also, I think my favourite, and you've been there, is Rye. Yeah. It's got the octopus's garden. The little underwater trail. Yeah, yeah it's fantastic. Estamos escuchando Radio Marinana en tres triple R. Now, marine debris, particularly plastic, we've just been talking about that, it's got a disastrous impact on our bays and oceans, which affects our marine life and ultimately affects us as well. As part of this year's Sustainable Living Festival, Bellarine Bayside's presenting Take Three for the Sea, a workshop and film screening of Bay Keepers. The evening's going to be presented by award-winning environmentalist Tim Silverwood, who will discuss his research on ocean plastic in Australia and around the world and what we can do to reduce our impact. Tim's now joining us on the phone to tell us more. Good morning, Tim. Welcome to Radio Marinara. Yeah, good morning, guys. Um, thought we might just uh, get you to tell us a little bit about your organisation, Take Three uh, for the Sea. What, what is Take Three for the Sea? It basically just says take three bits of rubbish with you when you leave the beach, the waterway, the park or anywhere. So we established ourselves five years ago on the central coast of New South Wales where 
surfers and divers and beach lovers and we were already picking up trash but we thought wouldn't it be great if more people could help the cause and I suppose in the process of doing that we've now seen the conversation increase more people are talking about plastic pollution or marine debris and we're finally starting to see some bigger actions taking place at the government and industry level to prevent further pollution. I love how you've chosen three it is a bit of a magic number and the fact that it's a it's an amount that it's not hard, is it? You, you know, if you wanted people to pick up 20 bits of rubbish, then they'd probably go, well, it's too hard. I haven't got a bag to carry in and all that sort of thing. But you can you can carry three things in your hand and then, you know, take it to your nearest um, bin or place to recycle it or whatever. Um, is, was that sort of your thinking in choosing the number three? Yeah, definitely. Just recognising that um, it wasn't asking people to do too much. Obviously, often you're leaving the beach as a surfer. You've already got a surfboard underneath your arm. You know, you might be with the family. You're taking toys and all sorts of things. But three is a very manageable number. But also recognising that um, it's kind of like that uh, that famous chip brand. Once you pop, you can't stop. So people very rarely stop at three. Once you see more, you'll find a way of picking up it and putting it in the bin or managing it responsibly, recycling it if it's recycling. Now, mentioned your research on ocean plastic um, in Australia and around the world as well. Tell us a little bit about, about that. What kind of research have you been doing? So I had an amazing opportunity in 2011 to go and study the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. I oh, spent wow. three weeks with a team of scientists and activists sailing from Hawaii all the way to Vancouver. And so we were looking at the accumulation zones in these gyres. There's five major oceanic gyres. Now, it's important to point out that often the stories that you're stumble across online refer to these gyres or garbage patches as floating islands of rubbish which is really quite misleading the oceans are all completely containing plastic these gyres just seem to be where there's a denser accumulation but it's not like an island it's more like a a plastic soup and it takes very specific uh weather conditions for it to actually form in anything like a slick or an island sort of situation so we like to really refer back to the nature of our oceans and waterways as being containing these mostly microplastic pieces. And that's where the conversation is really steering at the moment. There was solid research coming out towards the end of last year that was sort of quantifying it as saying there's 5.25 trillion pieces of plastic in the world's oceans. And then just recently we've had some new research saying that um, globally around the coastal communities of 192 countries, we're looking at inputs of plastic into the ocean in the order of between 4 and 12 million tonnes every year. And they've averaged that out to be 8 million tonnes of new plastic going into the world's oceans every year. So it's a lot of it's coming from developing nations, communities where unfortunately the increase in the adoption of plastic as a packaging source hasn't corresponded with effective uh, infrastructure to collect it. Um, but certainly we're not immune. Here in Australia we are considering um, contributing considerable amounts of debris and that's why we're really pushing for these bold moves here that deal with legislation, deal with industry, deal with sort of redesign because we have got the education, we know it's a problem, we've got the infrastructure and we've got the money and now it's really important that Australia stands up and really shows global leadership. What do you think the ultimate solution to this is, Tim? Is it a market driver, do you think, in terms of, you know, harvesting all of this stuff and recycling it in some way? Uh, in terms of trying to stop the input, it's just it just seems like such a, a massive job. Is it is it sort of that maybe can be something that goes hand in hand with, uh, with you know, harvesting it and recycling it? 
I think you have to look at a market-driven solution. I mean, we created and used more plastic in the first 10 years of the 21st century than we did in the entire 100 years of the 20th century. So our plastics production and applications is on the increase. So we really need to see a corresponding um, return rate to put these plastics back into a cycle. When you start looking at places in the developing world, we really need to make a market-based solution where communities can collect a, a kilogram of plastic, mixed plastic, and take it for reprocessing in local areas. That is really going to be what we're going to see with these communities because otherwise, it just, if it has a zero value, it's going to continue to be something they just bury or burn or dump. So, yeah, I do believe in market solutions, but I also believe in just legislation. Australia needs to have a national uh, approach to banning plastic bags. We need to have a national approach to a 10-cent container deposit scheme, and we need to start targeting those other really evidently problem plastic materials. Yeah, it's happening in increments, isn't it? But it's not happening fast enough. Um, wanted to talk a little bit about the screening of baykeepers, because that's going to be uh, part of your evening on Wednesday. Um, Neil Blake's a long-time friend of ours, and we're very familiar with baykeepers, but perhaps for listeners who haven't heard of Keepers. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and what they can expect also when they come on Wednesday. It's a wonderful short film uh, about the work that Neil and the team at Port Phillip Eco Centre have been doing studying plastics in Port Phillip Bay. So the Baykeepers film goes for 25 minutes. Uh, we're going to be screening it on Wednesday night and Thursday night. Wednesday night at Port Arlington, Thursday night down at Torquay Patagonia store. And it's a great film that just shows that we do have amazing power in our communities. We had a screening last night down at Ocean Grove. And this is where the change happens. Obviously, we're pushing hard for those top-level changes at government and industry, but they aren't going to respond unless the community is really banding together and making strong strategies to take it to the top. So really, we're going to hopefully see a lot of people coming out, learning a bit more. I'll be giving a presentation and conducting a bit of a workshop. We are going to be talking about local solutions to the problem. But if you want to know more about the Baykeepers film, best to keep an eye out on their Facebook page. Hopefully there'll be a lot more screenings of this wonderful film coming up around the um, around town in the, in the coming months and years. Yeah, it's a beauty. I've seen it a couple of times and uh, I highly recommend going and seeing it because it really opens your eyes. You know, it's the sort of thing that we're, we're aware of, but you once you actually see it uh, in, a, in film... Um, in you know, as part of a film, it really brings it brings it to life and makes it very real. Um, so, just a, a couple of plugs. So, you uh, you've got this event taking place on Wednesday. I didn't realise it was happening on Thursday as well. So, um, do you want to give us those details for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So, as part of the Sustainable Living Festival and with the support of City of Greater Geelong and Future Proofing Geelong, it's um, Wednesday night at Port Arlington at the Bayview Room at Parks Hall from six pm. Thursday night we'll be down at Patagonia Torquay from 6pm and uh, also great to know that this week I'll be visiting a dozen schools in the Bellarine region where I'll be conducting our Take 3 workshops that look towards getting students to create local solutions to solve this global problem. Uh, and You can find Take 3 online, very active on social media and we love to see and hear from people who are similarly passionate about preventing plastic pollution in our oceans. Hey, thanks, Tim. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the program, and we'll put those details on our Facebook page. Uh, but, yeah, look, if you're, if you're down the western side, you're, uh, in, you're in, you've got this wonderful event taking place during the week. Yeah, look forward to many people. Okay, terrific. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. And good luck.
Bye for now. Bye. Tim Silverwood, take three for the sea, Dr. Surf. Mm. This coming Thursday, 26th of February, our next guest is about to set off to complete an amazing feat for a really great reason. She's paddling 150 kilometres unassisted from Newcastle to Bondi Beach to raise awareness of motor neuron disease and to raise money for Surfrider Foundation. Jules Barr-Thompson joins us now. She's going to tell us more about the journey in store for her. Good morning, Jules. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Yeah, pretty good, thank you. Yeah, more to the point, you've got a big week coming up. How are you feeling? Um, I've been pretty tired this week. I've had, you know, a lot of training and and mental prep. That's the big one. Um, But, yeah, so this week kind of having a down week and, um, yeah, about to go for a surf to to try and mellow out a little bit. (laughs) Um, So I've mentioned mentioned a couple of times throughout this program, such a big paddle, 150 kilometres. Tell us about this. What's the backstory to this, Jules? You're raising money between motor ne- for no- motor neurone disease and Surfrider Foundation. We're sort of wondering about the connection between those two as well. Where, where did this all come from? Um, well, basically, I'm a professional ocean lifeguard. Um, I've been a lifeguard for about nine years from up in Noosa to Lake Macquarie to Newcastle. So I've, you know, experienced a fair chunk of the coast and, and how beautiful and, and magical some of those places are. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty aware about the environment and I've got a, a deep respect for it and maintaining it. So um, that's where Surfrider kind of links into things. Um, and then also the motor neuron, you know, I've, I've got that in the family. Um, whether or not it's actually a genetic thing, I'm not sure because it's such a mystery disease, but I just think the more we can raise awareness and research money towards it, the better because, you know, answers will be wonderful. So, yeah. And so you, uh, what are you actually going to be paddling on? Um, just my clubby board. So, you know, ideally it would be cool if I have one of those big Malachi boards that is designed for endurance, but, you know, kind of... A bit too hard to organise and, and scout those sort of things out, so it's like, oh, I'll just go with what I've got. <laughs> and as, is it a prone board, or are you going to be kneeling? Oh, I would just be mixing it up between um, lying and, and kneeling, and yeah. And how many k's are you planning to do a day? Um, I've kind of worked it out. So mentally, it gets better for my head, obviously, as well as physically for my arms and body. Uh, so. The first day, looking at doing roughly uh, 43k, then the next day, dropping it back to the 42, and then the next day, hopefully like 30-ish, depending on how I feel, and then the following day should be around 20. So that's a lot of days. What are you going to do? Sort of, are you going to paddle through the night as well? Is it possible for you to kind of have sleep breaks through this? What What's the plan with all of this? So the idea is, um, obviously, I don't want to run out of, you know, my body kind of fuels and energy stores and things like that. So I'll have some snacks and and fluid and things with me. Um, But, yeah, every couple of hours I'll stop and kind of rehydrate and fuel. Um, But then, yeah, I won't be paddling through the night. Uh, It'll just be early morning kickoff. Uh, so, yeah, I've kind of organised through Surf Life Saving, Central Coast and Northern Beaches. I've given them my itinerary, so I've said, you know, expect me, give me a wave if you see me out there. Um, come say hi as well if you want. Uh, but, yeah, so some of the surf clubs have said that they'd be happy for me to just kind of crash on the floor and 
and do that during the evening. Oh, okay. So you, you'll actually be able to go ashore and, and have a uh, have a bit of a break and then come back out again. Yeah, yeah, oh. exactly. Um, talk us through the coastline, Jules. Are you, I'm assuming you're familiar with it. Uh, what what are your major landmarks? So you're going to head off from Newcastle and and you know talk us through that um, kind of stretch of coastline down to Sydney. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so basically, I'm kind of. You know, if I was to go in every bay and kind of every nook and cranny that we've got on this beautiful coastline, I would be doing a lot more than 150 kilometres. So I'm kind of doing a couple of B lines to just get straight lines through the ocean from point A to B. Um, so my first kind of landmark point will be Redhead Bluff. So just coast straight through and across from um, Merriweather Beach over to Redhead. And then that's a nine-mile stretch of beach, which is in a bit of a horseshoe bend anyway. So I'll kind of just straight line it uh, to an island called Moon Island. Um, and then from there, just, just I mean, I'll see all the points and all the locations that I normally work. So I know where the headlands and, and there's a couple of beautiful uh, caves as well hidden around some of the rock faces. So... Knowing me, I'll probably go in and, and take a few pictures just because they're really pretty. So, yeah, I'll just be cruising. Oh, hi, Jules. It's Angeline. I just wanted to know, do you have any social media going where we can track your progress? Um, I do have a Facebook page. Obviously, I think I control that through my phone. So there probably won't be any updates during the day. But, you know, the morning and the afternoons and stuff, when I before I go or when I come in, I'll be able to put a few things up. Um, but, yeah, so I've, I've just pretty much just got the Facebook page going. Oh, great. It'd be good to hear how you're going and, and um, read your thoughts at the end of each day or beginning before you head off. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Jules, uh, this is a fundraising effort. How much money are you hoping to raise? Well, I put massive, massive expectations on myself. So I just said, oh, you know, whatever. Why don't I just put 50 grand up? (laughs) Um, Obviously, it's kind of been a throw-together kind of organisation and paddle and, you know, all of a sudden here it is next week. And by the time I've been training and working full-time and then self-managing this paddle, I really haven't had the time to plug it um, through media. So... You know, I've got a couple of grand, but, you know, at the end of the day, anything's better than nothing. So, you know, um, yeah, so I've put 50 grand. So hopefully, you know, after the paddle finishes or throughout when people hear a little bit more about it or just see what I'm doing and go, this girl's crazy, you know, you never know what will happen. So, no, not yeah. at all. And, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to get you on the program too, to, to get your story out to our listeners. And if they're listening and they want to take part and contribute, so just mentioning again that it's a fundraising effort for Surfrider Foundation and also for motor neuron disease research. So um, yeah. how, how can they contribute? Jules, if um, our listeners want I've to... got plenty of links on the Facebook um, page. So I've organised a crowdfunding website. Um, so I think even if you were to Google search um, crowdfunding Australia, um, that gets you uh, to their homepage. And then from there, you can just put in the search because there's plenty of crowdfunding events and things uh, going. But yeah, if you put in a 150-kilometre paddle... Uh, that should 
be able to locate the link to my page and then from there it's got quite a bit of a, a spiel about what I'm doing and a bit more info about me and a couple of other links to, to other things. Um, and then, yeah, it's, it's pretty simple. You just kind of click and you can either remain anonymous or put your name in a little comment and... And, yeah, go from there. So we've got uh, um, Kent, who's panelling for us today, has just put up the page. So it's AusCrowd, so Australian crowdfunding. And, uh, yeah, you're right. If you put in a 150-kilometre paddle, it's such a unique thing that you're doing. It'll come up. You're up to nearly three grand. So let's see what we can oh, do awesome. with our listeners as well to try and get you that extra 47 grand to get up to 50. <laughs> it, it shouldn't be too hard. It's a great thing that you're doing, and um, and we're right behind you. So good oh, luck. Thank you so much. Look, good luck this week. And um, we'll, we'll keep an eye on your Facebook page. We'll put a link to yours through ours as well and through Triple R website and uh, let's see if we can help get you up to that 50 grand. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Thank you so much for your help and support. No, no worries and good luck and uh, we're yeah, really looking forward to seeing how you go. Awesome. Thank you. And big strong northerlies we're hoping for you as well. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> yeah. All right, good luck, Jules. Thank you. Okay, bye for now. <laughs> that was uh, Jules Barr-Thompson. Raising money for Surf Rider Foundation and Motor Neurone Disease Research. Is she doing this unassisted? Is there no one else in the water with her? She's got a buddy. She's, I think uh, she's going to have a, a couple of buddies who will be okay. rotating with her. That but sounds better. Yeah, but in terms of, you know, there won't be anyone sitting there grabbing her oars and or one yeah. of our paddles and helping her paddle. There's a long paddle, especially on a board that's not designed for it. She mentioned the Molokai boards. There, there's a race from um, in Hawaii from Molokai to Oahu, and um, that's 43 miles, I think it's like. And they have these special boards that are like 16 feet long, they're wow. like spears, and it's tough to, to do it on them. Yeah, and this is about twice that distance. Yeah, yeah amazing. And now because we're running out of time, I'm going to do a very, very quick um, segment on Guardians of the Surf, which is a, a, an honours project by Anna Attard from the University of New South Wales on how many rescues surfers do. It was done uh, through a website called Swellnet, uh, a survey that was posted online. They had 1,048 replies. And the interesting thing was the estimate was that surfers rescue the same number of people from the surf as surf lifesavers, mm. which is about 5,000. And of these rescuers, 60% of the surfers had no formal training. Wow. So they just did it. Rips represented the major hazard leading to a rescue, which is no surprise to us. What was surprising was that the largest demographic of people rescued were males aged between 18 and 29, <laughs> and you'd expect them to be a bit more savvy. Um, surfers with prior water safety training were more likely to perform a higher number of rescues. However, if there was a rescue to be done, it tended to be done. 78% of surfers are happy to help. Results of this research suggested that 63% of surfers feel, feel they have at some stage rescued a life, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. And one, as I mentioned before, the, there's a couple of interesting bits that came out of the comments. I don't normally read comments on sites because they tend to get a bit um, abusive, but these were all very positive. They were surfers uh, sharing their various rescues, and I know I've rescued at least two people. Um, and there is a lot of... Um, I guess not angst, but surfers are worried they don't know how to do it. And with a board, what do you do? Do you put the person on a board? Do you take them off the board? And I think the general consensus is if you've got a long board, then you can put the person on the long board and push them in. But if you've got a short board, it can be quite difficult because short boards are only six feet. Mm. The people, um, dominant emotional response of people being rescued is panic. 
And so it's very easy for people to panic and put their arms around you and drag you down. Mm. In fact, I did a, 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 a first aid course a couple of years ago with a, a well-known waterman down our way, and he mentioned that more people drown that are going out to rescue someone than the actual person that gets in, pro- mm. in trouble in the first place because they get dragged under. And he actually said to me, I said to him, look, if, I see, if I'm on the beach and I see someone in trouble, what do I do? He said, you ring the cops, ring, ring the authorities, don't go in unless you have a board. Mm. So I thought that was, was really good uh, mm. advice. But there's a couple of things here that I think are worth um, pointing out coming from the comments. And the first one is the surfers are in the zones where the uninitiated are most likely to get into trouble. In other words, they're, on, they're in beaches that are not patrolled. You're not allowed to surf between the flags, so you don't surf there. So if you're looking, and a lot of people I know are going to do this even today, they will go down to a patrol beach and it'll be too crowded and I think I'll go, I'll go and swim somewhere else. So the message is, if you want to do that, fine, but understand you're, you're undergoing a risk or you're taking on a risk, but make sure surfers are out. If you want to swim in an unpatrolled beach and there are surfers around and you get into trouble, at least you've got some sort of backup. So I thought that was pretty good advice. But the most interesting advice that I found came from a a fella, and he has come up with a a way for surfers to rescue people that are trapped in in rips that I thought was a really excellent technique. What he does is he paddles out, and he he doesn't go to the person, but he stands or sits about 15 metres to the side. So he's not in the rip, and they're in the rip, and then he says, swim to me, come and swim to me. And he says it usually only takes three or four desperate strokes and they're out of the rip Mm. and they're bobbing beside him. And then he can get them in to the the beach safely. And they're not panicked by that stage because they realise rips are very narrow mostly. And and when you're in a rip, you should swim sideways. Mm. And it will only take maybe six strokes to get you out of the rip. And then often you can stand up. Once you can stand up, you're not going to panic. Mm. So I thought that was a really excellent um, suggestion. If you see someone who's in trouble in a rip, go out about, say, 15, 20 metres to the side and get them to swim to you, mm. and then they should be out of trouble and, and you can manage them manage them in. It takes that control. Mm. So <laughs> a, a, a very interesting study. Thank you, Anna Attard from the University of New South Wales. Hey, it's right on 10 o'clock and we need to exit the studio and let the doctors come in. Angeline, I know you've got some stuff there. Look, very quickly, just to acknowledge some uh, Australia Day awards, uh, Lane, uh, Lane Beachley, Officer of the uh, General Division, Order of Australia, and yep. also Dr Brian Cummings. Uh, he's an OAM Medal of the Order of Australia. I think we should get him on the show. I think we should, and we're going to cover this in more detail next time. Terrific. <laughs> thanks, Angeline. Hey, thanks so much for our guest today, Terry Allen, our new dive reporter, Jules Barr-Thompson. Um, um, paddling from Newcastle to Bondi and also Tim Silverwood about Sustainable Living Festival. We're going to put a few details on our Facebook page. Thank you, Kent, who's been paddling for us today. Thank you, Angeline. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Dr. Sir. Thanks, Kent. And uh, next week, we're going to have Mark Rodriguez from Parks Victoria in, Prue Addison from AMSA. She's going to be talking about that event coming up uh, at Melbourne Museum. So stay tuned for Radiotherapy. Have a great Sunday, and we'll catch you next week. Bye for now. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? 
Check out our website at rrr.org.au.